Good morning. It is good to be back with you all again. On that last worship song, I was desperately wanting to know whether it was going to be unforeseen kiss or sloppy wet kiss and which direction you would go with that. So we found out. Uh, Thank you for having me here. Uh, Just to introduce myself, I know many of you and I've been here many times, but my name is Andy Moore. Uh, I am a campus minister with an organization called the CCO. I work at Belfield Presbyterian Church, which is right in the heart of Oakland. Um, I've been doing that for 15 years. Nine of those years, I worked with your pastor, Chris Ansel. Uh, he's a very dear friend of mine. And when he asked me to come preach here today, uh, of course, I'd said yes. So thank you for having me. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Ooh. <laughs> dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So in 2019, Netflix released a series entitled Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Some of you, anybody familiar with this show? Nobody. Wow. Okay. Well, I have a premise written down, so it's okay. The show follows Marie Kondo, a Japanese organizing consultant and creator of what's called the KonMari Method. Uh, As she visits families, she helps them to organize and tidy their homes. And the KonMari Method consists of gathering together all of one's belongings, one category at a time, and then keeping all those things that spark joy. So when someone uh, on the show is weighing whether to keep something or not, Kondo will ask them, does this spark joy? Uh, Which also just happens to be her catchphrase. Uh, Does this spark joy? What in your life sparks joy? What is joy? What is joy? This is how Kondo defines joy. She says joy is a little thrill, as if the cells in your body are slowly rising. You feel it when you hold a puppy or when you wear your favorite outfit. It's a warm and positive feeling. The concept of spark joy is at times a difficult concept to understand because joy is a very personal feeling. For some, this can manifest as a feeling of peace, comfort, nostalgia, and excitement. Um, I agree a little bit with this definition, which is a nice way of saying that I disagree with a lot of this definition. Um, Once on a spring break trip when I was in college, uh, I went to Florida, and I had the chance to hold an alligator, okay? And as I was holding this alligator, I felt thrill. I felt the cells of my body slowly rising, as Kondo puts it. Was I joyful? No, I was actually pretty scared because I was holding an alligator and it could bite me. So often when we define joy, we would find, uh, we define it as synonymous with happiness or this adrenaline or nostalgia rush, um, as Kondo would define it. Happiness or that rush can come with joy, but I don't think joy and happiness are necessarily synonymous, especially from a biblical perspective. Often when reading about joy in the Bible, we are commanded to have joy in hard times. We are commanded to have joy in trials and tribulations in those difficult circumstances, not necessarily when you just hold a puppy. 
So uh, this includes the passage that we're going to go through today. And this is far different than just being happy. So we're going to study joy. We're going to try to define joy and see what it puts some wheels on it, see what it really is. Our passage today comes from John 16, 16 through 24. So you could turn in your Bibles and read along with me. That's John 16, 16 through 24. This is what it says. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will see me. And again, a little while you, uh, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the name of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. So what is happening here? Okay, well, this passage is part of what is called the upper room discourse. It's sometimes called Jesus's farewell discourse, which is found in John 13 through 17. The upper room discourse is the title given to this block of Jesus's teachings only found in the gospel of John. And this was Jesus's uh, his final teachings that he gave to his disciples during that last Passover meal, what we celebrate as the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. And all this took place the night before Jesus's crucifixion. This was Jesus's swan song to his disciples, packed with just these deep theological truths. And before our section that we just read, Jesus spoke about the work of the Holy Spirit and how God's very spirit will indwell within the believers, his church, uh, which is Pentecost. We celebrated that a little while ago. So when uh, we get to our section, um, the purpose is to support the early church uh, so that they don't fall away and that through trial their joy may be complete. Jesus starts this section with a rather confusing statement. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Okay, what exactly is Jesus talking about here? Which departure and return is he talking about? Does the first little while mark the time until Jesus' death or the time until Jesus' ascension? Does the second you will see me after the second little while refer to Jesus' resurrection? Does it refer to the descent of the Spirit? Does it refer to his second coming? Uh, or should we join all these in one kind of hodgepodge, as many commentators do, that John is clearly developing this language that is full of double or even triple entendres? Well, in my opinion, it makes the most sense that this verse refers to Jesus' departure. 
and death, and then his return and resurrection. The little while after which the disciples will see Jesus no more has already been alluded to before in John, uh, both to the Jews and to the disciples. So Jesus will die, but then after a little while, his disciples will again see him. Jesus will raise from the dead. Uh, As readers... All of us, with knowledge of Jesus' death, knowledge of his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming, we can make some deductions by reading this passage. But we have to remember that the disciples are hearing this for the first time, and they have no clue what Jesus is talking about. Uh, This is what the passage says. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? Uh, We do not know what he is talking about. So we must remember that the disciples have no foreknowledge or idea to allow them to make sense of a a Messiah who would die, a Messiah who would raise from the dead and seemingly seemingly abandon his people for a counselor, the Holy Spirit. So, no, they are confused. They have no idea what's going on, and they ask themselves what Jesus means by his words. In particular, they seem to be really perplexed at the words, a little while. So, the disciples wish to ask him the meaning of the words, but they don't. They don't ask him, presumably, because their question would expose their ignorance. And although disciples were to learn from their teacher by asking question, novices were supposed to learn by watching the example and listening to the instructions of their teacher. And so John is portraying the disciples as novices here. Um, So they concentrate on the words in a little while, and they see absolutely no solution to these. Where for all of us, Here, this might be a little bit more clear to us, but for them, this was a mystery. This was very mysterious. If Jesus wishes to found this messianic kingdom that he has been talking about, why would he go away? And if he does not wish it, then why return? But Jesus, uh, Jesus isn't dumb. He is fully aware of their desire to question him, and he repeats the comment while preparing to address this confusion. He says, Uh, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves when I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me. So reading between the lines, one can sense uh, in Jesus' response and his amazement at the uh, disciples' lack of comprehension here. Jesus is God, right? He knows what they want to ask him uh, about, uh, fitting John's portrayal of Jesus having this divine foreknowledge in in his gospel. Or the disciples were not so subtle. Uh, It seems that they were speaking openly to one another in front of Jesus, with Jesus kind of being like, guys, you know I'm right here and I can hear you, right? Okay, so Jesus probably heard what they were asking to one another because they did not do so quietly. And so he responds, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So this verse is referring to the grief that the disciples would have once Jesus died, while the world was rejoicing that they seemingly disposed of this, what they deemed as a false prophet. That your sorrow will turn to joy refers to the transformation of the disciples' attitudes when they see the resurrected Christ. 
So Jesus' primary point, there cannot uh, come joy without first being preceded by sorrow and grief. So Jesus' followers will weep. Jesus' followers will lament while the world will rejoice. And yet the sorrow is temporary because it will give way to joy. Uh, the Old Testament Israel knew that it is God who is able to turn their mourning into gladness and to give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Uh, the Jewish festival Purim celebrates the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. So Jesus does not end this with a note of sorrow. The disciples' sorrow will become joy. And just as sorrow was appropriate at the time of a loved one's death, the transformation of sorrow into joy fits the image of the second coming and the resurrection of the righteous. So in early Christian belief, Jesus' resurrection was the first installment of the resurrection of the righteous. It introduces believers immediately into the experience of the resurrection life. The disciples would not understand exactly what he was talking about or what he had in mind until after the crucifixion, until after the resurrection. The cross would, for them at first would be a source of sorrow, but later down the road it would be a source of joy just as it is to us. So Jesus then gives them an example and somewhat of a definition of what joy is. It says this, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also as you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So they say there is no such thing as a perfect allegory. They say there is no such thing as a perfect illustration. But I have to disagree because I think this illustration is perfect. Now this may come as a surprise to you, um, but I have never given birth, right? Uh, but I have witnessed three births. Uh, four, if you include that video I had to watch in health class my sophomore year of high school. So I, I still remember the birth of my first son, Benjamin, um, as if it were yesterday, September 8, 2006. Um, I don't know how many of you are here are fathers. Again, if so, happy Father's Day. And I don't know how many of you fathers have witnessed um, your wife going into labor, um, but it is absolutely terrifying. Your wife is in this tremendous amount of pain, what some deem as the worst pain one can experience in the human life. And all you can do is stand there and watch her in pain, and you are helpless. Um, and your anxiety, it increases and increases as you witness what I described to be simultaneously the most beautiful and disgusting event that I have ever witnessed in my life. And before I knew it, I was holding my newborn son, Benjamin, who seemed just so perfect. And it was in that moment that a love that I never knew could be possible uh, for another person culminated between me and my wife, 
and this beautiful baby that we had created. And to put into words how I felt is really tough. I don't think there are any adequate words in the human language to exactly describe how I felt, but I can tell you that I felt joy because love was visible. It was visible, and I wept because God is so good. And I had peace. And peace came through a visible manifestation of God's goodness and love. So let's go back to that original question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon. What is joy? I ask this now because I believe if we put a true definition on what joy is, it's not happiness, it's not holding a puppy. I believe this frames the entire chapter and it defines what joy truly is. So Philip Ryken, who is a Presbyterian theologian and pastor in Philadelphia, he defines it this way. Joy is not so much happiness as contentment. Joy is the ability to take good cheer from the gospel. It is not, therefore, a spontaneous response to some temporary pleasure. It does not depend on circumstance at all. It is based, rather, on rejoicing in one's eternal identity in Jesus Christ. And Tim Keller says this about joy. He says, joy is a delight in God and his salvation for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. It is opposite, its opposite is hopelessness and despair. Its counterfeit is elation that comes with blessings, not the blesser. Mood swings based on circumstances. So you see, Christian joy is not simply this happy-go-lucky attitude despite what I am going through, nor is it mere optimism for the future, nor is it mere happiness in the present circumstance that I am in, things that are good. And furthermore, Christian joy is not incompatible with sorrow and grief. Christian joy is much more deep and profound than these things. It is, it's, a, it's a fruit of the Spirit, something that can only be produced by the Spirit. And simply put, Christian joy is rooted in the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ and is produced in us through the Holy Spirit, through faith and God's Word. So, what is joy? How would I define joy? Andy Moore. Well, uh, I already did define it, if you are actually paying close attention. Um, this is how I would define joy. Joy is peace that comes through a manifestation of God's goodness and love. Is it happiness? Is it an emotion? No. Those things can happen with joy, but they are not joy by themselves. You see, joy is not an expression of happiness. The expression of happiness is happiness. Joy is an expression of goodness. Goodness and hope, goodness and beauty, goodness through pain, the goodness that is provided by the one who is all-encompassingly good, God. And if we define joy this way as a peace that comes through a manifestation of God's goodness and love, then that should change the entire way we look at this passage, at the entire way we look at joy. So Jesus here illustrates the psychological kind of dynamic of joy with the experience of childbirth and the combination of intense suffering and then relief. And all the pain, although the pain proceeding and going through labor is just intense, at the moment of birth, all anguish 
is forgotten out of the joy that a new baby has been born. Joy at childbirth uh, is in the Old Testament. It's a common illustration of the struggle of God's people, that God's people must suffer before this immense relief and joy brought about by a promised Messiah who brings salvation. Isaiah 26, 16 through 21 is a great example of this. Uh, It combines a figure of the woman in childbirth. It has the words, a little while, and the promise of resurrection. So Jesus was obviously alluding to this passage when he was talking. So the comparison between their anguish and then joy of a birthing mother is not accidental. This is purposeful. So in biblical times, um, some considered any mother's labor and birth as bringing her close to death, that she was dying at that moment. They didn't have the hospitals and sanitary uh, ways that we do now. So even on the Sabbath, Jewish priests expected midwives and others to proceed at whatever length possible in order to make a mother in labor comfortable during childbirth. And out of death, what was perceived to be the dying, out of death comes life. And though these birth pangs uh, apply especially to Jesus, they apply also to the whole of the people of God. Jesus' followers can be born again because of the birth pangs of the cross. Jesus' birth pangs are temporary and yield a longer joy so that the disciples receive a joy that no one could take from them. Their permanent joy will include a new relationship with the Father as inaugurated by Jesus' continuing presence through the Holy Spirit, the Trinity at work. And once the disciples rejoice after the resurrection, no one can take away their joy. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not merely a distinct event in history, but it is the dawning of a new creation, the dawning of a new era. This is not, of course, to say that the disciples or believers in general will never know what it is to have sorrow or never know what it is to suffer. We will suffer in this life. It is rather that after we have come to understand the significance of the cross, we will be possessed with such a deep-seated joy, a joy independent of the world. The world did not give it, and the world cannot take it away. And the events now taking place right here will alter absolutely everything. The disciples will not again return to the kind of situation in which they were previously. In the future, they will direct their prayers to the Father who will give them whatever they ask in the name of the Son. And up to this point, they had not asked the Father for anything in Jesus' name. That was a privilege that belongs to this new creation, this new order. And now in anticipation of the new order, the disciples are exhorted, ask and you will receive. They do this in full recognition that this is the route to which uh, joy Joy in Jesus has been promised to them. If that joy is part of the pattern of consistent obedience, that obedience, that remaining in Jesus and his love and his word is the pattern of which we bear fruit. The fruit bearing that is direct consequence of prayer. The connections amongst asking, receiving, and complete joy are clearly set within and introduced by Jesus's death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then fully realized again when he comes a second time and makes all things new. So I've talked a lot 
about Christ's commands to his disciples. Now, the Gospel of John was written to a specific people in a specific location uh, and a specific time with specific issues to them. And this discourse was primarily meant for Christ's disciples, primarily. We are reading somebody else's mail, so to speak. But just because this letter was written to a specific audience does not mean that this letter is dead. Because God's word is living. And the joy is not just the disciples' joy, but this joy is ours as well. Because the very same spirit that is alive in the disciples is also alive in us. And we too can have that same joy. We can have joy in the mutual partnership in the gospel, and the advancement of the gospel, and the deliverance of the gospel. Joy is ours for the taking. So express your joy. You can express your joy through happiness, and you can express your joy through sorrow. And you can express peace that comes through a manifestation of God's goodness and love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being Emmanuel, for being God with us. And it's because of you that we can experience true joy. We admit that it can feel, uh, sometimes it can feel hard to be joyful in the middle of a difficult season. But when the cares of our hearts are many, your comfort gives us renewed hope. So today we choose to take refuge in you and we choose to rejoice. And we will sing for joy because you are our strength and you are our salvation. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And because of you, we are now able to experience the joy of your presence forever. Thank you. Thank you so much. You are always worthy of all glory and of all honor and all power. And so no matter what we face, we will choose to worship you and experience joy that only comes through you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.